Here's your almanac for tilling the cultural soil with the conversations we plant with humor, wisdom, and faith. With your hosts, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Carmen LeBurge, and I'm Nat. Welcome to The Till. This is indeed The Till. I am one of the hosts of the program here, Dr. Peter Kapsner, and I am in studio with my good friend, Carmen LeBurge and Nat Becker. Hi, Carmen. Hi, Peter. Great to be here with you. Glad to have episode one, season one rolling here. Hi, Nat. How are you doing? It's incredible to be here today. Well, you crushed the music bed. It was a good opening to oh, this uh, this project that we're starting here. I know, Carmen, you and I, it was about maybe, what, three or four months ago, I want to say, that uh, I shot you a text because you and I have been working together for quite some time in some different ways with this morning show on the Faith Radio Network. And I think one of the things you and I both noticed when we're part of that show is how many different conversations come up that are terribly relevant uh, for where people are living and and how believers are experiencing their lives on a day-to-day basis. But at the same time, you just don't have a ton of time to really get as in-depth as you might want to get with some of these topics. The the guests come on, they're excellent. You take five, six, seven minutes with them. And the next thing you know, you're sort of on to the next topic. And there's just so much happening in our country these days. There's so much happening in the world of politics, the world of religion, the world of families. There's so many things to cover. So we thought, hey, you know, this might be an opportunity to take a shot at a podcast. What might that look like and what might that sound like? And it was fun to kind of text back and forth on that level. Absolutely. And I, in the sort of as a sideline to that conversation have been literally tilling uh tilling the soil of um an idea what 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 would it look like if Christians approached the culture as a garden instead right. of approaching it as um a war zone and so you know that's kind of what i responded back to you with like okay we see this harvest of unrighteousness around us all the time we would very much like for there to be a harvest of righteousness, but in order for that to happen, a lot of other things would have to happen in the lives of Christians and in the witness of Christians in the world um, in order for, wow, stuff that needs to be dug up to be dug up and new seeds to be planted in order that a generation from now, the world might genuinely be different. Yeah, and you were talking about this concept of this farminary idea. So it's sort of a seminary, uh, but farminary instead, with that very principle in mind, recognizing that how we are and what we do in the present, we often don't actually reap the benefit from that. We don't see the fruit of it. It's it's often a generational thing. And, and I know I'm often with my students and, and talking in a class like sexuality, for example, when we start going back into the 1990s and, and the early 2000s and we see the ways people were thinking about their sexuality and the ways that they were acting within their sexuality, now it makes more sense why in 2019 and beyond we're experiencing what we're experiencing. We're reaping a generational harvest, but it is, it, it's a harvest of unrighteousness, like you said. And what would it mean to take time and space now in today's day and age to sort of start planting some new seeds, to maybe uproot some of these roots and hope that when you and I are long gone, <laughs> uh, Nat will still be here because he's, you know, 13 years old, right, Nat? Is that it's 12 and a half? <laughs> 12. <actually>. <laughs> it <laughs> just drives us wild, Nat, that you're so much younger than the two of us. So it's, <laughs> this is speaking from a place of bitterness and jealousy I'm nursing right now. But, um, um, but we're we're hoping that this kind of program could really sow some things in the future that you could listen back in the year 2040 and say, hey, there are some seeds planted. We're not mm-hmm. going to overestimate what kind of impact we can have. But we do believe that in the conversations we could have here that we really could leave something behind for the future that your generation and beyond that could grow up into. Right. Totally. No, and that's exactly what planting those seeds is what will grow into the future that that, that I can 
that I can live in and the future that I can reap the rewards and harvest for around in our culture and communities. Yeah, and Carmen, you live in sort of a farming society, as it were. You actually have, like, from what I understand, a palatial estate of like 10,000 acres or something along mm, those lines, right, mm. in Tennessee? I mean, tell us about it. Uh, so we live on 45 acres, That's and we me. do have a garden and an orchard and some chickens. Mm. And, yes, there are always um, there are always stories related to the seasons and the seasonality of things. And so, you know, I think that one of the things that I would like for us to recognize is that there's going to be a rhythm and a routine to doing this that reflects how life works um, and how we are designed to enter into these kind of rhythms. I mean, I think people think of them as routines or ruts, and they're not. They're they're genuine rhythms. There are some natural seasons to things. Um, stuff does come around again. And just because it comes around again doesn't mean, oh, you know, I'm bored with that. I've done that once. I'm not going to do that again. That is actually not how tending works, and that's not how cultivation works, and that's not how growing up works. And so uh, I think that part of the attraction that I have to this conversation and having this conversation in this way is that it's a little bit um, slower, a little bit more reflective, and we can return to it every single week and we can reflect on what's growing, what has taken root, um, what's germinating, what are the, what's the season that you're in, how is that season changing? I mean, those would be, I mean, in fact, maybe we just go around the horn right now and we just ask that question, like, what season of life are you in? Yeah. It's now, a, there are like a thousand different approaches that you is. could take. So I think we just throw that out there. Peter Kapsner, what season <laughs> of life are you in? Uh, well, at 48, almost 49 years old here, uh, I feel like I'm nearly dead. Uh, so it's and, and in theory, I should have a lot of years yet ahead. But it's interesting when you start aging and you move into this season of life where you most likely have more days behind you than you have in front of you. And, and it does really change the game a bit in, in a number of different ways. Um, a, a couple of things that I can think of, Carmen, is it, it makes you pause about what you might want to say yes to and step into because you just don't have as many different horizons of opportunity in front of you as you maybe as I maybe felt like I had. When I was 18, 19, 20, I thought, well, shoot, you know, I could be a mason for a bit. I could be an engineer for a bit. I could be a world traveler for a bit. I could be a photojournalist. I mean, just pick, right? I mean, you got a million things ahead of you. And if it doesn't work, well, then you just pick into the next thing. And, and at 48, 49, it's, I mean, again, hopefully there's a lot of years still left on earth. But you do kind of pause and think, what are the things that I want to say yes to that feel like they're going to have substance, that feel like they're going to matter, and most importantly, that aren't going to further some sense of my own career or my own kingdom. It really is a turning around and giving back. So there's, I would say that's the season that I'm in right now is wondering for all the stuff that I've had a chance to have access to, whether it's crazy educational kinds of stuff or people that I've met along the way that have poured kingdom life into me, uh, that when they were in their season of turning in that way, if I have anything left to give in, in those levels, that's what I want to do is just turn around and give that stuff away. It's not about trying to build a career anymore at this point. So I don't know if that makes sense. You and I, Carmen, are roughly the same age. I don't know what season you're in or if some of that resonates. I'm so much older than you that I'm going to let Nat answer the question next, <laughs> and then I'll answer last. You just, you just pause reflectively there just about I'm how, how reflectively yeah, pause. You, you, Nat, you do that, yeah. So you can take this any direction you want. You don't have to go the same direction that Peter went with the question. It's a wide open question. What season of life are you in? Mm. Well, as 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 the young one, as thirteen and a or twelve and a half, 12 going and a half. on yes, twenty one. Yep. I, really, I feel at this point it's 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 a sort of dead winter sort of moment where we have the full spring of life yet sort of looming there. But right now, it is cold. 
and the wind is biting at my nose, and the scarf definitely doesn't cover mm. my face fully. Uh, I, I have most of my life yet ahead of me, um, and, and so many options, and uh, definitely I have time to say yes to everything. Mm. But, you know, sort of navigating how, you know, how to, how to approach the oncoming spring and uh, make it through winter. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I don't know when you're talking like that too, Nat. I was just with some 25, 26-year-olds last night and found out some job transition stuff for them that they're struggling at 25, 26, even to know what to do with a job. So just because you're young doesn't mean you're in a spring of life, as it were. I mean, they right. feel like it's a dead time and they don't really can't see a pathway forward and there's not any necessarily seeds that they can even sow at this point. It, is that some of what it's like for you at this point, 21, 22, wondering what am I going to do with myself moving forward? <laughs> It's pretty much spot on. It, it, there's a, it's an interesting combination of, of endless possibilities. I really could be a stonemason or whatever, but, <laughs> but also, you know, it, it's not endless and you have to make some decisions and obviously we can't be everything. Um, and so it's just an interesting paradigm of struggling through that and, and trying to figure out what, what actually do I do. That brings us to you, Carmen. Uh, I mean, so, yeah, right? Yeah, so when I I pose the question, what season of life are you in, um, it really is wide open. We are answering it uh, in large measure vocationally, or we are answering it in terms of the years that we have. Other people would literally answer this question with um, uh, the name of a sport Mm. or the name of an animal that is now available to be hunted in a particular mm. season yeah. or they would answer it generationally or relationally i'm in i'm in a season i'm in a i'm in a single season or i'm in a married season or i'm in a widowed or widow i mean like right or i'm in the grandma season um so life cycle answers to this question i think come up for people a lot there's also a discipleship answer to this question. For sure. You know, I'm 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 in a season that I'm growing or I'm in a wilderness period with the Lord or I'm in a real period of seeking or wow, this is really just an abundant harvest time in my spiritual life. So I think that when we ask the season question, you know, I would I would challenge each of us to sort of turn it over and over and over and answer it in different ways um with some of these different things in mind. So I will answer it this way. Um, there is a, a, a time and a season for everything under heaven, and I am in a season both of um, great abundance and also great anticipation. Mm. That's the way I would describe the season of life that I'm in. I'm 51, and I have a very full house, um, a very full plate, and lots of opportunity. I feel abundantly blessed, and I also feel like there is just really an amazing field of opportunity yet ahead. I I appreciate the way you answered that question, Carmen, too, just in the sense that we don't automatically go to the age card with this. Because if I look back, and I'm sure people listening look back, you do go through extensive seasons of life, and you can almost see those times where everything feels fallow and feels like, you know, there's just nothing happening and you almost have to let it go fallow so that there, there can be sort of a return of the soil of the soul that can be then given the nutrients it needs to grow yet again. And so there's been long seasons where I feel like jeepers, I don't remember the last time that I heard God's voice. And other times it feels like, you know, God's voice is, is in and around and surrounding me all day long and just dialed in and can see with wisdom and discernment all of the potential possibilities. But then, like you said, other times where 
can't really seem to see anything at all. And so there are a lot of different ways we can answer this season's question and to reduce it down just to an age one, I think would be unfortunate because I mean, you look at the biblical text and oh my word, I mean, there's, there's so much there in terms of the parable of the soils and, and what that all speaks to and, and the seasonality of even the Jewish calendar, what that invited people into with all the different festivals. So there, there was not just a sequential time dimension of this. It really spoke to all kinds of different spiritual realities, these different festivals, these different soil parables. I mean, I just, I love Pentecost, for example, just the idea of the first fruits and what that meant to be the first fruits of uh, those people following Jesus as the Spirit descended upon him. I mean, there's endless different directions we can go with this in terms of this whole farminary, the till, the cultural soil, the fruit that's being born. All of this language really works, not just for today, but from a historical standpoint from the scriptures as well. So, Nat, do you think that Peter's actually looked at the schedule for the show and he knows that those are all <laughs> subjects we're going to be talking about? Oh, I, I hope so. Well, I just got done telling you. I'm going to see it. I'm in a different, I'm being led by the Spirit right here. See, I'm discerning with just create clarity where we're all headed here, Carmen. I love all it. All of those things are in the plan, man. I love it. Absolutely. Well, There's a s- whole almanac. There's a whole almanac we have set out for ourselves. I love that idea. How do you, so how do you want to get started with this? I mean, we've sort of given the, the show So let's intro. start with this. Yeah. So let's ask this question. When you um, survey the culture, when you kind of look across the culture today, if I were to ask you what kind of fruit do you see, what kind of fruit do you see the culture bearing today? Boy, I, I guess the way that I would answer that question is, is I would say it's a combination of um, probably apathy and sort of a beaten downness. I know that's maybe not actually a word, but I, but I see people that just don't have a lot of spring in their step anymore. Uh, I think people feel overwhelmed. I think people feel like there's not a lot of hope into the future. I think people uh, maybe try some different things and maybe try to generate a bit of hope in their life, but then expectations get uh, hit or hurt or destroyed, and they don't necessarily have voices of shepherds to help sort of lead their pathway moving forward. Uh, I think often of that passage in Proverbs where it says, train up your children in the way that they should go. And when they're old, they won't quickly depart from it. And in that train up passage, uh, it's, it's not about teaching proper doctrine. It's in the Hebrew, it literally is the idea of put a hedge around your kids with the voices of the community. And so as they grow up, they have a sense of purpose and identity and part of something bigger than themselves. And so I see, I think, a lot of apathy and a lot of downheartedness because people just don't have a sense of self and don't have a sense of identity. And and I think some of it is we're just reaping the fruit of this hyper-individualism where it's all about you and it's all about your purpose and it's all about, you know, be whatever you want to be, which is sort of our cultural mantra, which is not a scriptural mantra, by the way, but it certainly is an American one. Uh, there's nothing in the scriptures to suggest that. But I think we've just... All of that is the result of why people are like, I don't even know how to move forward. And, and I think that's why then, like I said, we see the rise of suicide rates the way we have and the hopelessness and the depression and all that goes with it. So th- those would be some of the different words and languages, I would say, as I look around is a bit of apathy and downheartedness. Okay, Nat, how about you? When you look around the culture, what's the fruit you see? I, I feel a lot of that, that, that individualism is definitely is, is highly prevalent, but what what I feel like that that reflects itself into is a lack of peace. You don't you don't walk around and then the people in their in their full suit coats speed walking through the sidewalks. Nobody looks peaceful. We don't everyone has this 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 high energy of of getting places. And I'm not against uh, you know, 
this this productivity or this innovation or any any of that, but that can all be achieved through you know, a sense of calling and greater purpose that gives us a reassurance of who we are. Mm. And that is something I think is really lacking in the fruit that has been produced in our cultures today. So I'm just going to remind us that the fruit of the Spirit, I mean, just listen to this list. Love, I think the Greek word there is charity, but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Mm. Now, contrasted with those um, in, in this list is in Galatians chapter 5, if somebody wants to look it up, but contrasted against those are what are described as the works of the flesh. And um, the works of the flesh precede the list, uh, which, which is the list of the fruit of the Spirit. But if we want, I mean, I don't know about you, but I would love to live in a culture I would love for my grandchildren to live in a culture where the fruit of the culture is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I know that in order for that to be true, we as Christians in this generation have to do something different and we have to start doing it now. Because when I look around, the fruit that, um, that I see is the fruit of delusion and confusion um, sadness, deep, deep sadness, darkness. Mm -hmm. I don't see a lot of or a consistent, abundant, ever more abundant harvest of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's not what I see, and I want it to be different. Yeah, it's funny when you said look at that list, and so I did here in Galatians 5 as well, and so these are some of the words from that list in Galatians 5. It says sexual immorality, debauchery, hatred, and discord, jealousy, fits of rage. I mean, just think about the headlines that we see. I mean, these things are all in the headlines day in and day out. Selfish ambition, dissensions and factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Uh, you know, again, if you just survey the newspapers or you decide to, to kind of channel surf through some of the different news channels, these are going to be the primary stories of the day are going to be represented by a lot of those words. But I think where there's some hope in this and in the, in the beautiful words you referenced, Carmen, about the fruit of the Spirit is that when we run across those kind of people that sort of emanate from the inside out these kinds of things, they're not playing a game of love and joy and peace and patience, goodness, kindness. They actually, there has been something going on in the beautiful intersection of God and us as we, uh, as Dallas Willard says, we're co-conspirators with God and his kingdom. And, and as his spirit dwells within us, we actually become inhabited by those beautiful words of love and joy and peace. We become those kind of people. And thankfully, I don't know if, if you both know, but I, I know a few people in my life that when they step in the room and that stuff emanates from the inside out of them, boy, it shines a light into the darkness of all those other things. That darkness doesn't stand a chance, actually, in the midst of that kind of light. Those people are few and far between, unfortunately, but there's a strength in them. And, and that is the kind of stuff I'd like to see left behind for sure. Matt, you want to weigh in here on this? Well, the the few people who do emanate light like that, it it radically makes a difference. It I call them shiny. Shiny? Yeah. You know some shiny people, don't that. you? <laughs> Definitely. And and it always makes a difference when they walk into the room. And the idea that you would see that walking around on the street and in the community and, and for our great-grandchildren, uh, a, a world where that's prevalent, uh, even just more likely is 
is beautiful and does bring a little bit of hope that you know we could switch a little bit of bit of our headlines around them. Yeah, I mean, Carmen, you must do you have stories. Do you, can you, is anybody coming to mind if you sort of free associate Ooh, with the word people? shiny? If I say, hey, who's the shiny person? Do you have anybody that comes right to mind? So the first person that comes to mind is Trillia Newbell. I don't know if you know Trillia. <laughs> I don't. Trillia, Trillia um, she works for the ERLC, which is the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission yeah. at Southern Baptist Church. Um, she's African-American. She is shiny. She's the shiniest person I know. I mean, mm. I, 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 yeah. I, that's it. When you said, you know, do you, can you think of somebody? Yeah, that's who immediately comes to mind. There are others, but for whatever reason, she's like, she's like shiny girl. Hmm. Well, How about and, you? Who well, comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, I have to say it, it might sound kind of cliche, but my wife is a very shiny person. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Um, it doesn't mean life is easy. It doesn't mean, you know, I, I don't want to get confused to say to be a shiny person means that suddenly everything is just going so easily in life. But somehow a shiny person is able to stand in the midst of it all, right? And and just isn't fussed. And uh, and, I've, and I've watched her become a non-fussed person by so many different things. And uh, and so she's a shiny person for sure in, in my life. I'm really grateful for that because we need that. I mean, I can't, I don't know about you two, but I can't walk out this thing alone. It's part of why even, I mean, as ridiculous as it sounds, I'm excited to do a podcast uh, with the two of you as I get to be around two other people that are and want to continue to grow in sort of that shininess deal. I mean, Nat, I don't know, you're a student at a university. What do you see in terms of, are there either professors that you know, are there students that you know that, that have that kind of shiny deal? Yeah, there are, it, it's not as many as you would think in it in a university setting with so many people together. But uh, but we do have these people, and, and it, it makes such a difference when you grab coffee with them. It, it, over, it changes your whole day, and it's something that, you know, it, it really it marks a point in your day, and it, it, it really does change things. And, and they're unfazed by, by a lot, and that doesn't mean that, you know, that it's easy. They all, they all have their struggles. You know, Nat, I have to say at this point, though, um, let's just let's just be clear. You're a student at the university where I am a professor. I even <laughs> I even led you into that. I suggested. <laughs> do you know any professors, Nat I so, Becker? I mean, Carmen, I did so, you not I see wanted this? to hold up a sign. I uh, wanted to hold up a sign and like say to Nat, you're supposed to say Peter. I mean, it was super like, obvious. Have you not was, been to Sunday school, Nat? Wow. Did you notice that I did not make eye contact when I said yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Well, you exactly. know, it's, it's not it's not without merit, Nat. It's not without merit. <laughs> Hey, here's what I'm wondering, gentlemen. Could we demonstrate what we're what we're hoping that other people will begin doing, which is to not just consume the news, but actually engage with the headlines in such a way um, that we would be able to till the soil of cultural conversation and we would be able to plant seeds where right now there's either fallow ground or, frankly, there there's really unrighteous stuff mm-hmm. out there. Do you think that that is something that we could do uh, next? Yeah, I love that idea. I love putting, right. you know, putting her hand to what the plow is doing right now and, and actually right. getting underneath some of the stuff. All right, so let's demonstrate what this kind of looks like uh, in terms of having a conversation about a headline story, a headline news story. So I'm just going to grab one here. So here is a headline news story um, related to a woman who is 61 years old who gave birth to her own grandchild. So see, there you go, Peter. I, I, I know. I, I'm, I'm trying to work out I, the I math of this just right now. Go yes, ahead. Keep going. I know. Well, so yep. I'm going to help you work out the math. Okay, so thank you. Uh, the, the young man involved here is named Matthew um, Elledge. 
His husband, Elliot Dougherty, decided to expand their family. Dougherty's sister, Leah, offered to donate her eggs, and the couple planned to find another surrogate to deliver their child, but then they found out that process was not only confusing, they weren't very confident about navigating in vitro fertilization as gay men, and so enter uh, the mother of Matthew Elledge, um, who at the age of 61 carried her own grandchild. Um, and so here's a, here's just a paragraph. <clears throat> Dougherty and Elledge said they anticipate difficult conversations of narrow-minded reactions over Uma. That's Uma is the name of the child. Uma's unconventional birth story. But the couple is prepared to explain the circumstance to Uma when she gets older. Quote, I'll tell her Auntie Leah gave a piece of herself. She gave a seed to start the gift of life. And Grandma provided the loving garden for you to bloom. I think that's gorgeous. Now, the conversation that I'm hoping that we can have here is not one that is critical of the confusion in this family, but that we can sort of reestablish, okay, this is not the intended order of things. This is not the way God designed this to work, and that we could have a conversation um, that kind of helps people to know how to even converse about such a thing that is absolutely so inside out and upside down in terms of the way it's supposed to work. Yeah, gosh, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, I you know, you're, as you're reading the story, I'm I'm trying to process like what would I even say about a story like this? And, and to your point, and I, I mean, obviously there's things that are running amok in the story. We don't need to stand back and be critical and say, oh gosh, you know how silly is this is this story? I, I often think that in today's day and age, in the absence of voices that are uh, helping people frame and understand their lives. I mean, of course, when you're left to your own devices, it, whatever seems good in your own eyes, right? I mean, to use some biblical mm-hmm. language around that, that's that's really, it's understandable. It's not justifiable, but it's understandable that people make decisions like this. And and in terms of how I would process some of that uh, in, along the lines of what you're talking about, Carmen, I just keep thinking, so what is this child who was birthed by his or her grandmother to two gay men. Will this be confusing to them at all when you explain their origin story at the age of 16, 17, 18, compared to what we're meant for, compared to having a a birth mother and father that are in covenant marriage with each other and that that clearly are in a place of uh, having said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and raising kids in that kind of environment of safety, knowing in theory that your parents are together and walking it out. I mean, if you just compare and contrast somebody's origin story between the two, I think you start seeing a bit of the difference that how this is going to play itself out in their lives moving forward. I'm just really curious. But at the same time, I'm I'm mindful of like when the book of the law was rediscovered by Josiah, they didn't know what they didn't know at that time. They were actually like, oh my gosh, there's a different way of life that's possible. And when did we lose all of this? And so for this young person who's conceived in this way, again, bearing God's image in the midst of all of this stuff, how will they even know that there's a difference if we don't have the difference about the way things are supposed to be between male and female? And why is that better why would a male and female marriage be God's design in this in which children are birthed as opposed to this scenario? What makes the one kingdom and better and a place for peace and love and all of that fruit of the spirit that you've referenced? Why would, how could we explain to somebody that that's better? 
So this, I think that the conversation that we have to start with somehow, some way, is who gets to define what is good. Yeah. Um, because uh, there's no question that, you know, babies are good. And so, um, you know, there's no question that this baby is good. This is a fundamental good. Right. But, um, but the way in which the adults involved have gone about imagining um, how to bring a child into the world so that they could have some genetic progeny. I mean, let's get, let's get right down to what this is going to ultimately be about. This is ultimately going to be about the, the generational um, reproduction of somebody's genetics. It's not that there are not children available to be adopted, because there certainly are. Right, of course. And so this is, has to be a conversation about life, about conception. It has to be a conversation about marriage. It has to be a conversation about children. Are children a gift of the Lord or are children um, a commodity to be added as an accessory to our lives at the point in time when we determine we should have a baby? Like that should be something that we should have. We, we whoever we are. And so I think it's a question um, about autonomy versus sovereignty. Um, I mean, I just think there's a lots of conversations that, you know, literally we could till the soil of um, in the midst of this. Yeah, I think so, too. And I, and I think it really, as I went back to that question of, so why would having the traditional idea of a, of a male and a female that are in a lifelong covenant partnership, why would that be the best kind of soil in which a young person can grow up? And if you don't take your cues from the Bible, if you don't see the Bible as authoritative and inspired in those places, then, you know, where would you get your authority from? But I know from the scriptures and, and part of what we've talked about in some of my classes and trying to answer that question is it's really interesting when you look at Genesis 2, when you see the words male and female in Genesis 2, that when you look at the the words, it's ish and isha, ish being for male and isha being for female. And when you look at actually like the language itself and the Hebrew characters sort of function in in this way where they, they have symbols associated with them. They're more of like an Eastern kind of a language, more of a, of a Mandarin type of language where the symbols actually have meaning within them. The Hebrew language functions that way. And for Ish and Isha, when you look at them, part of what is interesting about uh, the letters themselves in male and female is that they share two of the same three letters in them that when you bring those letters together, it forms the name of fire, which is the image of God. And so the male and female both carry the image of God that is fire. But then they each have this unique character that is part of their name, too. And, and when you bring those unique characters together, it forms the very name of the Lord. And, and the point being that when male and female are standing side by side, the female has a piece of God's image that the male doesn't have. And the male has a piece of God's image that the female doesn't have. And we could have long conversations about what that is because I don't entirely know like what constitutes the intrinsic differences between male and female. But the point is, is that you have both uh, male and female, the fullness of God's image represented here on earth. And in that environment is where then the next generation needs to be growing up in, sort of in the fullness of a God-surrounded life would be the best way to talk about it. And so conceived in these circumstances, it's not that same sort of God-surrounded life that they would be growing up in. Right. Well, 
this was like my favorite day. Uh, I I took a class with you. You did, Peter. Gosh, uh, see, you're redeeming yourself in this know. moment. <laughs> no, no. See, we have to stop there and just say there's no self redemption. Oh, I'm going to okay. be oh, the like. Oh, thank you, Carmen. No, that's very helpful. Carmen, that's fine. Yeah. I was yeah doing All the right. wrong Galatians five part there. So go ahead, yes, and that. Oh, oh, but you, you diagrammed this out on the board: the Ish and Isha, and the 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 symbolic components that rebuild the word fire and and God out of both male and female and how, how together uh, it, it's the completed image intended way that God created us. Yeah, and if people are listening right now, you literally can just Google uh, Hebrew characters for Ish and Isha, I-S-H and I-S-H-A, and then go into images right there, and you see it right there. It's just laid out. I mean, I'm not, you know, some brilliant Hebrew scholar. Mm-hmm. It's 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 right there within the language itself. But it, it is there's always this gasp moment in the room, right? right. Now when people are like, totally. oh my gosh, male and female actually does matter. It's like embedded somehow into what makes us human. And it's even in our difference, male and female, carrying some of these dimensions of God. And that, again, would love to have that conversation at some point, what makes mm-hmm. us different and unique from each other, mm-hmm. but both needed, both needed for, for sort of the shaping of young people. Okay, can I read the two of you another paragraph from this article? Yes, totally. I, I already had my head explode from the first one, so go. <laughs> um, well, there is a conversation uh, in this article about how much it's going to cost to have a baby. Yeah. And part of it is that insurance isn't going to pay for it. And so they do get to this question about whether or not, quote, citizens have a right to make life. And I thought that was an interesting question um, that is posed in here. Uh, because it was going to cost them a lot of money. And when they find, found out how that their insurance wouldn't cover it, they say, um, well, wow, we really thought this could be something that would affect us financially for a really long time. It makes you think to yourself that they don't know how much a child is going to cost. Like, I mean, ultimately, like, right, it's, it is uh, financially expensive to have kids. And, I mean, over time, like, this this little person is now here, and she's going to have ongoing needs forever. So that's one conversation in terms of this is a responsibility that we have generation to generation for those we do bring into the world and those um, whom we care for. But this was the paragraph that I really wanted to uh, hear you guys reflect on. Matthew said, um, now this is, you know, the, the biological dad in this scenario, that he and Elliot had mixed feelings about genetic testing. Now, they don't have any mixed feelings about IVF or surrogacy or or, or doing this with one guy's sister and one guy's mom in terms of the contributions to this person. Quote, you, but you can find out the sex in the process. And so the choice made them uncomfortable. Quote, I'm not a super religious person, but you do feel like you're playing God. Am I choosing too much? Wow. Um, yes, maybe, I suppose. I mean, I think we can fairly say we all uh, sort of fall into that Genesis 3 sort of mentality, right, where the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and Satan comes and says, if you eat, or the serpent comes and says, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. You can sort of carve out your own pathway for what seems good and evil in your own eyes. And so, I mean, that really, that's interesting that they would have enough of an intuition because I do think that our hearts are geared for eternity, however we try to shut them down, however we try to maybe um, harden our hearts, that they, there, there is an eternity in mind. And I think we sort of know it when we're playing in, in sandboxes of ethics and morals that is well beyond what we should maybe be playing in. And you go to that playing God place, 
uh, thinking, you know, I really want to have children. This is about me. This is, as you referenced earlier, Carmen, this is about my future and I, and I want to have kids and, and, uh, it's more even about my own desires. So I will play God in whatever way necessary to meet my own desires. That, that sort of is the heart of any kind of rebellion. It's the opposite of trust, which is, which is the heart of God's kingdom is a leaning into and a surrendering and a trust. And, and so, Again, I without being overly critical, because I can certainly point out a lot of areas in my life in which that Genesis 3 thing is happening, where I, I feel way more confident in making my own decisions about the future, believing in that God-likeness. But clearly it's at stake here. And I do, as I said, find it fascinating that there is still enough of an intuition that says, maybe we need to think about this a little bit. Well, and I think it's the last, the, the final uh, uncontrolled step that we, that that's sort of tangible to to the outside, to the onlookers or to the parents themselves. And there's a lot that you can't predict and, you know, how the genetics uh, interact, but the the gender of the child is sort of fundamentally throughout all of humanity something that we don't know. I mean, in fairly recent history, we've been able to, you know, halfway through uh, identify the gender of their child, but that's still something 100% uncontrolled from your parents. And so... To some extent, you have control of, you know, when and if you are going to have children. But the the final choice of what your child's gender is 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 kind of a fundamental unknown of the of of the world it we should, live in. It should be, but it's no longer. I think that's the right. conversation that you know where we we have reached this point where you can cook up uh, whatever you want. Um, these you know sort of made to order babies. And I think the commodification of children is a problem. I just, I think it is a real problem in the culture. And I think that when we start talking about the ethics related to life, um, this is a really robust area where Christians have not engaged um, very significantly. And so, you know, one of the things that I think that I'm compelled to do is to start getting comfortable with some really uncomfortable conversations. Like, what are the, you know, what are the boundaries or the borders that we should be putting up in conversation with one another? We should be saying to one another, you know what? Are you sure that's a good and godly path to go down? Um, n- not is it possible? Because anything's pretty much possible now through medical technology. So that's really not the question. But is it right? And is it righteous? Not is it legal or is it possible or can you afford it? But is it right? Is it righteous? Are we even asking that question anymore? Well, that is a really great question. It calls to mind a, a story that I remember from one of my classes. There was a pastor in one of the classes. It was a, a adult degree completion kind of class. And so he was finishing his degree and we were talking about in vitro fertilization, which is, as you mentioned, Carmen, I can't remember maybe ever hearing that topic addressed in, in a church community and yet the implications and the questions are so complex and so significant in that. And, and he then, to his credit in the classroom, he cracked open. He became terribly vulnerable about what the process was like for him and his wife. And he talked on one level about how unbelievable he grateful he was that they have children, where otherwise they wouldn't have been able to have children. So now they've got these kids. But, uh, but he also knows that in the process of in vitro fertilization, because it is so expensive, they tend to try to harvest or cultivate up to maybe 10 embryos or so. And then they implant two, three, four of them. Try, and that's so often, obviously, why it's a multiple birth situation. Mm-hmm. If, they, if they all are able to find sustenance in the uterine lining, then they can all be birthed. But so many of them are not. 
But then what do you do with the remaining ones that you didn't implant? And that's what he was talking about in terms of the ethics of the situation is, is that they can remain in a state of sort of frozen, suspended animation in a, in a donor bank, I think somewhere outside of Atlanta, where you can keep embryos for up to 20 years frozen before they are then otherwise not considered, quote unquote, viable, whatever viable might mean. And then they're scheduled to be discarded. And and so you have that whole conversation. And on top of it, I remember uh, talking with the CEO of a pharmaceutical company that was then actually purchasing the otherwise scheduled to be discarded embryos so that they could conduct some final sort of scientific research on them to get the harvest the stem cells so that they could maybe find breakthroughs for some of the really horrific diseases like an ALS or an Alzheimer's or something. And so, I mean, you want to talk about the commodification of, of, I mean, when you say that, Carmen, and I hear the word commodification, I'm thinking in terms of using for one's purpose, benefit and gain and often financially. And oh, I mean, all the way through that process I just described, how would, I mean, how could we get into that in a a show like this? Like, how could we walk people through? How do you discern? and, And just because you can doesn't mean you should and all of that kind of stuff. I don't know how you land on some of that, but clearly to your point, there's a lot here that I think a lot more people have done in vitro fertilization than we know and probably would love to have some sense of counseling and guidance in, in the process. Um, I have on occasion not been the most popular girl in a prayer group because of this subject. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, this actually comes up a lot among women. Um, there are a lot of women uh, who are, a lot of Christian women who are, um, who have done know, everything under the sun in order to to conceive and have children. Um, there's probably a conversation that we should have there about why that is. Why, why do we, why are we so obsessed? I mean, babies are great. Please do not get me right. wrong. But um, I don't think you're any less of, uh, of a woman if you haven't had children. And I don't think you're any less of a Christian couple if you don't have the, your own biological children. Like, I just, I, I, I don't think that way. Um, but I get it. I get that it's really, really profound for, um, uh, for a lot of people to be sure their biology, their genes are what, you know, are going to be walking around in the next generation. Um, so I do think that uh, it makes relationships really hard I think pastors are not well equipped. I don't think that most couples go and have this conversation with their pastor before they have this conversation with an IVF doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that the people who are giving input on these subjects are not the, you know, the most mature Christian in the room. Uh, it's often the most um, advanced medical technology of the day that uh, that is influencing the conversation. Um, I want to uh, I, I want to share this with you, because in this article, one of the things that this young man says, now keep in mind, this is a young man who is I mean, you know, he's gay. He's married to another man, mm-hmm. a conversation that it, it would be interesting to have as well. But just in terms of, of his moral code and what he's what he's choosing to follow along in his life, they got to this place where they wanted to have a baby um, and this is the process through which they engaged in doing that. It was very expensive. Like we've been down that part of this path. They, this is the same young man who, you know, sort of tripped up at the point in the conversation when you were going to get to choose the sex uh, of the of the baby. And he's like, oh, I that's maybe a step too far. I don't yeah. want to play God. 
here is the really interesting thing, and this gets to Peter what you were just talking about. Um, there's there are other embryos that were created in this process, and this is what he says about the two embryos that are quote unquote on ice. He mm. says it's a weird thing, you know. I know they're just a bundle of cells, right? But now I'm like, how can you discard those? So there wow. is a moral. Mm. He, I mean, there's a moral. Um, there's the echo of the truth yeah. somewhere ringing a bell somewhere in there. And I think that's what I want us to be sure that we're constantly pointing out. Where is the moral bell being rung even in headline news where, wow, it just really looks like things have gone off the rails? Yeah, I, I love that idea, Cameron, for these kinds of topics. And I, and I just keep thinking, and, and you've sort of said it, that uh, we go to these, um, we go more to the science community to kind of give us some insight and wisdom about what to do and 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 sympathy for pastors. I mean, you and I both have fancy letters after our names. We have the MDivs and been through seminary. I don't know about you, but I don't remember a single class in which we were empowered, equipped as pastors to try to sort out how to then help couples walk through the conversation of in vitro fertilization. So if pastors haven't been equipped and empowered, it's no wonder it's hard to find a voice to, to then speak some truth into this. That's what I'm most compelled by in talking about these kind of conversations is can we dig around in the soil long enough to find that place then where it's just like, oh, here's the rootedness. Here's here's sort of the eternal trees that have been planted. And maybe they've been covered by a lot of, of just dirt over generations, but we can find that root of the kingdom and we can find that the place that's going to be there uh, that then we can talk about. And, and not just talk about just because we want to pontificate on stuff, but actually invite people then into wholeness with it. Uh, because the one thing about these stories is that there's just such little wholeness is what it, at my sense is. And yet people long for it. To your point that you mentioned this person, he's like, right? These are just cells, right? And you can just hear this this longing question of needing an anchoring in this place that I think all of us need. I think that's uh, that's so wise and that's so right on. Okay, so I am really looking forward to the future of the till. I'm looking forward to the next conversation. Um, and... Hey, if people have ideas, Nat, how are they supposed to share those with us? You can send us an email at thoughts at the tillpodcast.com and we'll read it. I love it. All right. This has been really fun as a uh, as a first effort, as a first time together. Um, and I really look forward to, you know, the ongoing seasonal nature of this, planting seeds, tilling the soil of the conversations of the day in order that indeed we might produce a harvest of righteousness to the glory of God. Thanks for joining us on this first episode of The Till.